Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Any reading of the New Testament or the Gospels immediately brings to someone who's reading it, or at least if they are paying attention, that there's a whole lot of references to the Old Testament. And there's a presumption in the Gospels that one knows the Old Testament. In fact, if you're reading the New Testament, especially in the epistles, talks about knowing Scripture and the Scripture that has been given, they're not talking about the Gospels or the epistles. They're talking about the Hebrew Bible, the Scriptures given to the people of Israel. And in the spirit of wanting to delve into the roots, we have uh, commemorated this day the holy prophet Samuel. The prophet Samuel was the last judge of Israel. He stood at a transition place between once Israel had come into the promised land that had been promised to them by God, that there was, they never really finished the job of clearing the land, and they had a period of judges. And Samuel stands at the end of this period of judges, because as the book of Judges tells us, this is kind of a time of chaos. There was uh, constant strife, uh, constant idolatry, constant problems plaguing Israel. And so we are brought into the first book of Samuel, if you're reading it in, I'll call it just a Protestant Bible for the sake of it, or First Kingdoms. I think last week when I was talking about Elijah, I said First Kingdoms, that should have been Third Kingdoms. Uh, But with the prophet Samuel, we have and we encounter God bringing to his people not only a new judge, basically you can almost read that as like a king, but we have a prophet and a priest. The birth of Samuel, and tell me if you recognize this story, Samuel's mother, Hannah, was unable to have children. And her husband was upset about this, but he still was glad to have Hannah because she was his favorite. This was a time where there was multiple wives, okay? Hannah is absolutely distraught that she cannot have children. So she goes up to the temple in Shiloh because Jerusalem has not become the place of the temple. We should say basically a glorified tabernacle. It's not the full temple of David because this is the time before Saul, David, and Solomon. And she goes into where the Ark of the Covenant is held, not into the Holy of Holies, but into the building holding the Ark of the Covenant. And she is pouring out her soul. She is bawling. She is lamenting the fact before God, the face of God, that she cannot have children. There was the priesthood, of course, and at the head of the priesthood this time was Eli. And Eli sees this woman who's crying, and she's not actually saying anything. She's just crying, and she can, he can see her lips moving. Or at least... We think that he can see. The story will unfold a little bit later. He gets mad at her. He thinks some drunk person has wandered into the temple and is desecrating the space. So he chides her. She turns to him and then tells him what the desire of her heart is. And he blesses her. And lo and behold, God blesses Hannah 
as well. Hannah uh, gives birth to Samuel. And she has promised that the first fruits of her womb would be dedicated to God. We see Hannah, one so moved, resting in God and his promises, who then turns around and then at a very, as soon as he's weaned, takes him off to the temple in order to dedicate him and, I'll say, basically offer him as a sacrifice. I do not mean he gets up on the altar. That was a little bit earlier in Genesis. But I'm talking about that he's now a dedicated member of the temple. You can probably hear echoes of stories that we know. Hannah, Anna, not able to have a child. At a young age, when she's actually given a child, she then offers the child for service in the temple. This is, of course, the Old Testament precedent for Anna and the Virgin Mary. And then offering Mary in the temple where she serves the Lord. Now Samuel is a young child and it's, we're told that he gets to wear the little linen cloth of a priest. And he is serving in the temple. In fact, Hannah brings him every year a new set of clothes. And it is in one of these nights as he's sleeping in the precincts of the temple, he hears his name called out. And he goes because he thinks it's Eli. We're told Eli is sleeping a little bit closer to the ark. uh, And his eyesight is starting to fail him. So Eli says, "Ah, go back to bed, kid, you know. Samuel then hears his voice again. Samuel comes back again. Maybe Eli, he's getting a little bit older in age. Maybe he doesn't realize he's crying out for me. Okay. And then Eli says, no. The next time this happens, you need to say, here am I, you know, your servant. And Samuel encounters God before the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, where he is told the future of the house of Eli and what his role, Samuel's role, is going to be for Israel. We are told, so Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Everything that Samuel, later in the book of Samuel, we hear that Samuel is a seer, that he sees, and we heard it in the hymnody even, that he knows what the future holds for Israel, for Eli. What does this passage remind you of? So Samuel grew in the Lord before the face of the Lord. Who else grows in wisdom and such? Our Lord, right? So Samuel grows up before the face of the Lord serving him in Shiloh, where God revealed himself to Samuel. Eli, of course, wants to know what Samuel uh, has been given by God. And Samuel is very reticent to tell him. But he tells him, Eli, your house and judgment is coming to your house. Things are going to end. Right before this, Eli had been visited by another prophet of God who uh, was much harsher than Samuel and tells him basically, your house is done. Your sons who serve in the temple, Phinehas and Hophni, they are going to die. In fact, they're going to die on the same day. Now, why is this? What is going on with Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas? We're told in the scriptures that there is a particular way that we learned that Israel had been taught about how to serve the sacrifices. 
And it is Hophni and Phineas that we're told, uh, basically, skim, I'll just say, skim the fat off the top, basically. Uh, they are taking what is not theirs instead of what is supposed to be given to God. We also learn that it's not just Hophni and Phineas. This is Eli who's taught them how to skim the fat off, right? So we have a judgment that has come. God is, Scripture tells us, he's displeased is the, not the right word to say it. But God is hot with anger with them because these are the priests. These are the ones who should know better. And they're the ones skimming the fat off the top. Right after this revelation to Eli, because let's face it, part of what's happened is that Eli has completely failed as a father. Eli has not taught his sons what they're supposed to do. He's not taught them the commandments of the Lord. Or if he has, he's taught them what they're supposed to do. And then he shows them a completely different face. Right? And he says, you know, it's okay. God understands. We'll just take this little bit. It's completely unnecessary, right? He's just eating a little bit more. Remember that. Eli likes to eat, okay? So, there's war with the Philistines. Israel is defeated. And so the elders say, you know what? We need to bring the Ark of the Covenant to us. Because the Ark of the Covenant had gone into battle with them when they had gone conquering and come into the, uh, the promised land. It was Joshua, when he goes around seven times around Jericho, what is at the forefront of that march? The Ark of the Covenant, right? So, everyone remembers this, and they think, you know, the Philistines are handing our uh, butts to us, so we need to go get the Ark of the Covenant. We need to go get our big artillery, as it were. So, the people sent to Shiloh, they brought the Ark of the Covenant and notice what scripture says, the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim, the Holy One, and guess who's flanking the ark as it comes into battle? Hophni and Phineas. You can imagine everybody going to say, oh, okay. <laughs> Here comes Hophni and Phineas, the ones who took from my sacrifice, the ones who are getting a little chubby because of the table of the Lord. What do you think happens at this battle? Does Israel win? Nope. Israel does not win. They have the Ark of the Covenant with them. God is with them. They also have Hophni and Phinehas with them. And we learn later, it's not just that they had Hophni and Phinehas with them, but all of the people of Israel were still going off to visit pagan shrines, they had their own little house gods. They had their own little side gig, side hustle with other gods. And so God allows them to fail. Not only is the ark captured, Hophni and Phinehas die in this battle, and the Philistines take off with the ark. So, zoom out from the battlefield. Go back to Shiloh. Eli can't see anything anymore. He's sitting outside of the gate. No longer is he sitting in the, in the temple of the tabernacle at the time. He's sitting outside the gate. He hears somebody run past him. 
Scripture tells us that this man from Benjamin, which was basically the Marines of Israel, he is covered with dirt and he's been out of the battle. He's escaped and he's come back to tell. He runs past Eli, who used to be the leader. He goes into the town. He tells them what's happened. And there's lamenting and crying. And then Eli, finally, the man from Benjamin, comes before Eli. You see what's happened to Eli? He's moved out of the temple. He's not even in the gate. He's sitting outside of the city. And he asks what is going on. And so he tells him, there's been a great slaughter of the people, that your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as the ark of God is mentioned, Eli falls off his seat backwards and breaks his neck. And we're told, because he was old and heavy. The blind fat man who used to lead Israel, sitting outside of the gate, the last to know what has happened, dies, you could say of a broken heart, or dies because of his own sin. <coughs> Heaviness in the Hebrew, now correct me, kavod or kavod? Kavod. Kavod. Heaviness. Glory. Maybe some of you have read a essay by C.S. Lewis on the weight of glory or the series. So this sense of glory, there's a heaviness to it. So we have the glory of God in the ark, in the temple, and it's talked about the kavod, the glory, the heaviness of God because of his glory. The same word is used for Eli. His kavod, his glory has killed him. He's hubris. He thinks that he can skim a little bit off the top, that he can uh, do what he pleases, and it is not his sons whom he laments, right? It's not his sons that he's worried about. He's upset, of course, because of the ark of God. But look at what Eli has become. This descent of a man who, from the beginning, not only is heaviness, he can't see. He couldn't discern rightly with Hannah. He can't, is kind of blind to God visiting Samuel. And he ends his life completely blind, heavy, heartbroken. To further this, his grandson is being born. And when his daughter-in-law hears about, this is Phineas' wife, hears about this death, this capture of the Ark of the Covenant... She says nothing, but she only names her son, and she dies in childbirth. The name of the son, Ichabod. Ichabod Crane, right? Kovod, you can hear the kovod. The glory has departed from Israel. So, meanwhile, in Ashdod, in Philistine, Philistine territory, they march triumphant into their city, they put the Ark of the Covenant next to their god, Dagon. Dagon, we don't really know that much about this god. But what we do know is that this was typical. You defeat somebody and you take their idol, except this is not the idol of Israel. This is the Ark of the Covenant, which would be odd because, well, everybody else has big idols, right? Big, maybe a fish creature, maybe some kind of, you know, Etc. Right? They have this in their temples. And they put the Ark of the Covenant, the, the spoils of war, in the temple next to Aegon. The next morning, they're going into their temple. And what has happened to 
the statue of Dagon. He's prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's weird. Maybe there was a wind in the night. The next day, they come in. Not only has Dagon fallen prostrate, Dagon's head and hands are gone. They're, they are scattered through the temple. So not only has the idol, has this God failed, but God himself has not just defeated him, he's completely like humiliated him. Obviously, this is an idol that can't do anything, but God just goes that extra step. We're going to take the head off, and we're going to take the hands off. Completely incapacitated. This is not the end of the story. Rats enter into the city of Ashdod, and with it, there are tumors. Now, this word in Hebrew is a little odd, and there's a lot of trying to figure out what this word is. Basically, the tumors are in the private regions of the Philistines. One translator calls them hemorrhoids, okay? So God afflicts the Philistines with a whole bunch of trouble downstairs, okay? One of the ideas about the the god Dagon, the Old Testament's fun, isn't it? (laughs) One of the things about the god Dagon that we think is that he might be a fertility god. We're not exactly certain. So if this is a fertility god, God has struck them right in the area that fertility happens, okay? So Ashdod says, we got to get this thing out of here. Let's go give it to our sister city, Gath. This is where Goliath comes from later. Gath. So they take the Ark of the Covenant over to Gath. Guess what happens in Gath? Suddenly there's rats everywhere and there's all sorts of tumors all over parts you don't want to talk about. Okay? The city of Gath says, get this thing out of here. They send it to the city of Ekron. And they come out and they say, no, 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 no. We don't want this Ark of the Covenant anywhere near us because you're going to bring this pestilence to us. All right, seven months, and they say, what are we going to do with this? This is the spoils of war. We defeated Israel, and yet their God is more powerful than our God, and we are being afflicted. I could hear the echoes of Pharaoh in Egypt here. In fact, when they go before their own, let's say, priests, and it says diviners, or maybe let's say magicians, just like in Egypt, they go, what are we supposed to do this to their own priesthood? And they said, all right, this is what you're going to do. You're going to make gold images of your tumors. And you're going to make gold images of the rats. You're going to put, I mean, okay. (laughs) You're going to do this and you're going to give glory to the God of Israel. And you're going to return the ark with the spoils of God's war. Golden tumors and golden rats, right? And then they say, why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? This is not Samuel. This is the priests and the diviners of the Philistines. He said, the God of Israel, he did mighty things among them. And they did not let the people go that they might depart. It's like, we should have learned our lesson. We should have never brought this here. Send it back. They get a cart. They get two milk cows who have two young calves. And they're basically going to put the ark in there and then the gold tumors and mice or rats that God has won in his war with Dagon. 
And they take the calves away and they put the calves back home and they say, all right, this is kind of a test. If this really is the Ark of the Covenant, it's going to go back home. Well, the two cows, it tells us, lowing as they go, they just march right back to Israel and then take the Ark of the Covenant with them. Now, the people in Israel, they're sitting there reaping the wheat harvest. Again, right? If this is a God of fertility and harvest, here's Israel reaping. They lift their eyes, see the ark, and rejoice to see it. Then they come and there's a large stone. They take down the cart. They break it down. They start a fire. They slaughter the cows. They offer sacrifices to God. It is still a problem for Israel with the Philistines. The ark has returned, but the Philistines are still menacing. So Samuel comes to where the ark has been put, and he stands before all of the people of Israel who have gathered together. And he says, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, put away foreign gods and the Ashtaroths from among you, prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only. And then he will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the bowels, the Ashtaroths, and they served the Lord only. This is now, having repented, heard Samuel preach to them and say, we've done this before. You can look at all of your ancestors before you. Every time that we go towards Baal, Ashtaroth, all these other gods, we suffer for it. Let's repent. Let's return to God. So Israel gathers together after this return to God, destruction of their idols, and they push the Philistines out of their land and have peace for the rest of the time that Samuel stands as judge of Israel. Samuel ends all of this war with the sacrifice of a lamb, and he prays. And he sets up a rock called Ebenezer. Does anyone remember a song long, long ago, maybe in your Protestant childhood, if you had a Protestant childhood? Here I raise my Ebenezer. And you're like, is that a reference to Scrooge? I don't really know it. This is what the reference is. Samuel, after winning this battle against the Philistines, raised up a rock in memory and calls it Ebenezer because the rock Ebenezer means Thus far, the Lord has helped us. God is greater than all of the powers of the world. God is greater than all of the idols, the demons, all of the stuff that we think is important and powerful. God is present among his people. If we know anything from the Old Testament... It is the ark and the temple and the presence of God that is part of what makes Israel God's people, that he is present among them. There is a holiness to God that if there are those in the presence of God who do not have that purity of heart, who do not have that ability to ascend the hill, that he judges that he brings forth the fruit of 
their sin of their idolatry. There is also this aspect, as we are coming to the end of the Dormition of the Theotokos, it is understanding these stories, especially about the Ark, that when we call the Mother of God Ark, that we think about all of these stories about the Ark of the Covenant. That we have a Holy One, the Theotokos, the Mother of God, from whom God himself was born. That we have in her a mighty fortress, a mighty protector. We call her a great general because she fights for us. There is something, and we are not used to this, but about sacramental presence and holiness. That when we come into the temple, when we come before the altar, when we receive Holy Communion, that we are receiving a holy God. And that repentance is the absolute key to our salvation. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas showed up and did things in the temple but they were not honoring God with their sacrifices they were skimming off the top they were keeping a little bit for themselves they themselves were dishonoring and bringing dishonor to God and to Israel so outward adherence token approach to the things of God is not the path to God this recurs again later because it is Samuel who goes and anoints Saul and David. And what is the big difference between Saul and David? Well, looks. Saul is gorgeous, right? He, st- he stands a foot above everybody else. Of course he's the king. He's the good-looking one. David, he is... He's not not attractive, but he's not Saul. He's not towering over everybody. He's not the great warrior, right? He's the little shepherd boy. It's because God sees into the heart, not just what we do from outside. So I want to end with going back to something we skipped over, which is Hannah's song after presenting Samuel in the temple. And see if this song of Hannah reminds you of another song. My heart rejoices in the Lord and my horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk not so proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge. God knows, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. The hungry, they have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven And she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. 
and exalt the horn of his anointed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.